Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about, well, about one of the most uh, one of the most important pieces of, uh, of human technology in existence today. A, a, a truly miraculous device. This thing, something we all use, of course, but uh, also something that we very rarely ever talk about, it is, of course, the humble toilet. Created not just to carry away your foul ablutions, but also to protect you from their evil stench and their unclean nature, and all the while offering you a place of comfort and safety, a place for tranquil reflection. But it was not always so. Let me tell you this. It was not always so. As a civilization, we have come a long way from, you know, busting grumpies in the woods and cleaning up with leaves to luxuriating on the porcelain throne in a dedicated room of its own, in many cases, in our houses, pampering our rears with uh, the finest three-ply. Humanity actually does owe a lot to the modern toilet and its effects on hygiene, public health, personal privacy, not to mention, of course, giving you a place to just, like, chill out for a second bloody hell mate it is fascinating to learn how toilets developed through human history um uh, including of course what we used before you know what we know as a as a a toilet these days came along and i'll tell you this we're really coming full circle with this episode too we're really coming uh, full circle i mean for me well for me personally anyway because the endless entertainment that toilets and toilet related topics have provided for me over the years um, it, it's interesting because many of them, I mean, over the years, you know, the, the, the deep comedic well of toilet related humor has treated me very well. And this is, this is an opportunity to, for me to give something back to, to- well, not, not that there's any shortage of what I've given back to toilets over the years. Let me tell you that I'll make no secret of the fact that I've been very generous with what I've given to toilets over the years, but Something that is something that, that, that really does tickle me about me doing this episode is that, you know, over the, the decades, decades that I've filled with toilet-related humour, um, one of the most common consequences of that, one of the most common results of me, you know, having a giggle about the, about the toilet is being told to grow up and be serious. And now here I am, a grown-up, doing a very serious history podcast talking about toilets and poos and wees and farts and bums and crusty buttholes and getting paid for it as well patreon.com slash half history thank you patrons. so as you can probably guess there's a lot to get across today and i'm very very excited to get across it i don't want to waste any time talking about talking about toilets 
when I could instead be talking about toilets. So let's get underway and get stuck into all the wonderful things that they involve. Fully indulge the infantile enthusiasm for toilet humour that I've nursed for three decades. Here we go. So before we begin the history part, however, before we begin the history part, let's do a little bit of etymology here. Because the word toilet is actually a very interesting one. In some parts of the world, as I'm sure many listeners are aware, in some parts of the world, well, particularly in the US and Canada, toilet is considered, the, the word is considered a little uncouth, a little rude, a little coarse to say something like, I'm going to the toilet. You know, you, would, you wouldn't say that. Uh, in Australia, it is the polite thing to say, broadly speaking. But then again, you know, that's because in Australia, we also say stuff like, got to go and punch a growler or, you know, I need to spray paint the porcelain. So I suppose in contrast to sayings like that, more or less anything is going to be polite. But anyway, um, it is it is a something it's something of a coarse term in in the US and Canada, which is all the more interesting when I tell you that the word toilet itself is a polite euphemism. It, well, it used to be in any case. In the same way that Americans say bathroom, which is you know very stupid. I mean, you don't you don't have a bath while you're punching a growler, do you? Unless you're into that sort of thing, in which case you know you do you. But the word toilet actually started out as a polite term to describe the, you know, the horrific, unspeakable acts you perform while on the dunny. In the same way that today, for Americans, bathroom is that polite euphemism. It used to be toilet. And it's not even the first. The euphemism treadmill has seen countless terms replace others and then be replaced over the centuries. You know, garderobe, water closet, powder room. But the term toilet came about in English as a loan word from the French, uh, toilette means a, a small cloth, I understand, the type that you put on your shoulders when you're getting your hair cut. So the little sort of towel thing that drape over your shoulders, that's a toilette, right? So toilette then expanded its meaning uh, to include any type of personal grooming, not just, you know, not just anything to do with your hair or whatever. It, it, it included more or less anything that you do in, in, in terms of personal hygiene, personal grooming. And over time, by the 19th century, the word toilet started to refer to the room in which you would do the grooming. So you would go, you would do your, you would perform your toilet, right, in the room that then became known as the toilet room. And then as a sort of, as the euphemism treadmill progressed, a room that you went away and did things you didn't share in front, you know, you didn't do it in front of other people, it then became... A, uh, a word that referred to where you'd go and, you know, void. So here's me teeing off at Americans for calling it the bathroom, but the word toilet itself used to refer to the room in which you'd do your bloody hair and makeup. Um, and the reason that it changed, interestingly, uh, the reason that, that the, 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 room, the, the, the room in which you did your toilet became known as a toilet is because um, public dunnies and the dunnies on trains started to be signposted. There'd be a little signpost when trains were developed, that sort of thing. There'd be little signs on them that said toilets, right, which meant powder room. Again, another euphemism. Um, and over time, the word became used less to describe grooming and more to describe, you know, Murder and brown snakes. So the 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 modern meaning of the word toilet emerged as a result of this. And this is why, by the way, interestingly as well, there's another side of this that um, we call our personal grooming supplies, you know, the stuff that you take on holiday. That's why they're your toiletries and that's why they go in your toilet bag, which I always thought endlessly funny as a child. I imagine that all sorts of evil things that you could do into a toilet bag when, you know, when, when you couldn't find a toilet room. But um, that's why they're called toiletries is because that was the original meaning of the word toilet. So very, very interesting to see how the euphemism treadmill has, um, has uh, you know, has, has changed things. The word toilet is itself a euphemism. 
I mean, maybe in 100 years, bathroom will be similarly uncouth and we'll be calling them something else together. I mean, this isn't a new phenomenon. When you think of all the different words for toilet, you know, lavatory, water closet, commode, loo, dunny, bog, the list goes on. It's clear to see that we go out of our way uh, to, to you know, not talk about what goes on when toilets are involved. Like anything to do with genital, genitals or, you know, rudy nudie bits or bums and fannies and willies, the sense of taboo stands in the way of clear, unaffected communication. Now, you might think this is stupid and you might think it's morally uptight, unnecessary in a, in a modern, more liberal era. But I have to tell you this, even as someone who, who you know, relishes this, this type of humour, I'm very glad that these, these, you know, repressed prudes exist, to be honest, because... It wouldn't be quite as fun to talk about bums and fannies and willies if we weren't, you know, if we were allowed to, if we were allowed to talk about them, if it didn't raise any eyebrows, it wouldn't be fun to do it. So the fact that you're probably suppressing an embarrassed smile right now as I talk about bums and fannies and willies, that on- it only proves my point, mate. It only proves my point that we need the prudes in order for episodes like this. We need, we need, you know, the, the, the grumpy dad tutting over the top of a newspaper in the punk rock music video in order to have fun while we're talking about toilets. Anyway, anyway. Let's get let's let's not get too distracted with bums and fannies and willies. Let's get back to the serious business of toilets here and how they've developed over the years. So we're going all the way back now, all the way back to the fourth millennium BCE, over five thousand years ago here, to the very first indications that we have of human waste disposal systems that served, you know, broadly speaking, the same function as a modern toilet uh, would these days. So around this time in the fourth millennium uh, BCE, before the Common Era. Um, Clay pipes were invented, and with them, very primitive sewer systems, and therefore, of course, toilets. Now, before this, right, you would just pinch one off in the woods or something. I don't really know, like dig a hole and bury your turds like a cat in a litter box. Who can really say? Um, but in, in ancient Mesopotamia, right, in the city of Uruk, there are remains of ancient internal pit toilets, just, I mean, a deep hole with an opening at the top to sit on. But these date back to 3200 BCE. And what's significant about them is that word that I said before, internal. They are inside. They are inside people's homes rather than being an external or communal area outside. And this is quite an advancement and one that I have to say didn't stick around universally throughout human civilization as the years progressed, as, as, as we'll discover. But internal toilets... At least we can date them back at the very, uh, you know, at the latest, back to 3200 BCE and and perhaps longer. There are other examples of uh, examples of ancient toilets as well, even more advanced in some cases, such as the Neolithic village of Skara Bray, which is found in Scotland. Um, now these islands or this village uh, in in particular, Skara Bray, is home to the second oldest toilets on record, uh, dating from around 3000 BCE. But these toilets, apart from also being uh, built inside, had another wondrous innovation um, uh, in, involved with them as well, because they were built over communal drains that were built into these dwellings. Right, these was these dwellings were kind of built into the hillside, kind of like a hobbit hole. Um, and there were drains dug into the floors of these, the communal drains, uh, and the privies were built on top of the drains. The drains would then carry your ablutions away from the village into a water source that would actually whisk them away like that. Job done. So it is what it is effectively a primitive flushing toilet. It doesn't have you know the chain or the button or anything. It doesn't have the dual flush, but it is what effectively becomes a precursor to the modern flushing toilet by using a natural water system rather than an artificial one to carry away the waste that was uh, that was unceremoniously dumped into these uh, into these indoor privies so you know quite an advanced piece of technology for something that is again 
5,000 years old. Next, we've got uh, evidence from the Indus Valley civilization, modern India and Pakistan. There was a city there called uh, Mahenjo-Daro. You may have heard of it. Um, And the building, some of the buildings in this city had toilets constructed as part of the outer walls of people's homes. And these toilets were linked to actual human-made drainage systems that utilised flowing water uh, to whisk away these foul ablutions, just like in Scarabray. But these drains were organised into a basic sewer network with, you know, with more advanced piping and, and, and whatever else. So in Mahindro-Daro, there is a, a very rudimentary sewer system already. I mean, again, this is thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, so it sort of goes to show that this was a problem that people wanted solved. They didn't want to live in a, you know, pile of their own filth and excrement which does make a lot of sense you know the human there are there are there are a few universal uh, experiences of the human condition and one of them i guess is not wanting to live too close to where your own turds end up anyway after this you know we, we, so we've had basic toilets for a long time that's 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 uh, that's fair to say but after this um uh what what effectively you know the development of of, of, of toilets didn't didn't sort of speed up too much for for, for thousands of years holes were dug um, uh, either very deep or above moving water, and then people would squat over them or sit on them and uh, and do what they had to do, and that w- and that would be that, right? But what's very significant, um, particularly about uh, some of these um, uh, very early toilets, right? Some of the ones you know in Scarabray and Mahindradaro, they were found in cubicles. You know, you could they offered privacy to the user, and these these are very significant because again, this isn't something that was that caught on universally, as we'll discover as we keep talking about the way toilets developed, right? Something interesting about these very ancient ones is that they did, as built being built into cubicles, did offer the user a bit of privacy. You know, you, you could hide away there and read. I mean, I don't know. They didn't actually have the, they didn't have the back of shampoo bottles then, did they? I mean, for that matter, they hardly had writing, so that's probably a bigger obstacle to reading the back of a shampoo bottle than the actual shampoo bottle itself. They had neither the shampoo bottle nor the writing to go with it. So big, you know, sort of one problem feeding the other there. Anyway, um, these these toilets were were significant for many reasons, their, their age, their, their construction, and, and the fact that they, they offered a bit of privacy. But as the centuries passed, Toilets like this, again, without developing too much further, became very common in more civilizations around the world. In Egypt, Persia, and Greece, uh, places like that all had basic toilets by the time we get to the 18th century BCE. Um, And throughout Southeast Asia as well, there are remains of ancient toilets that have been uncovered only very recently, dating back to the 16th century BCE. Um, But these are very significant discoveries, uh, again, only made within the last couple of years. But these toilets, the reason they're significant is that they still have the remains of turds in them, right? I mean, what a discovery that would have been for those archaeologists digging around in these uh, in these sites, and all of a sudden they're finding fossilized turds. I mean, you know, imagine that press conference. Oh, I'm proud to announce that we've found, you know, we've discovered these these old toilets, like really old. Geez, they're bloody impressive. They're really old. And if that's not enough, mate, you're not going to believe it. We've found the turds. That, you know, we found the turds. What people done in them as well. So what a day for them. What a day for modern archaeology. In all seriousness, though, actually, these these turds were very, very useful. Um, these these coprolites, as they're called, fossilized turds, enormous scientifically, enormously scientifically useful, enormous scientific value, as they help us to understand what ancient humans in this area actually used to eat, what kind of parasites they had. Uh, you know, it, it it helps to paint a a clearer picture of uh, of what the lives of these people may have been like. Anyway, by the time we get to the classical era, you've got toilets all around the world, primitive toilets, certainly, but Toilets, all the same. You've got drop dunnies or pit toilets where, you know, it was just a, a great big hole would be dug and then eventually f- filled up 
You know, not not with this, largely speaking, not with the same stuff that was dug out of it, slightly different substance it would be filled up with. And then it would be covered over at the top when it got very full. And then a new hole would be dug instead. Now, a couple of issues with pit toilets, of course. You may have used some in uh, in certain areas where maybe sewage isn't available. Um, sewage isn't available. They use uh, a pit, pit toilet still very much in use today in certain, certain parts of the world. Um, a couple of issues with them, principal amongst uh, them, is the fact that the, the waste that was dropped into pit toilets, I say dropped, uh, would seep into the soil around it, right, and potentially contaminate water sources nearby. You'd end up with groundwater pollution if this happened, no good at all. Um, and the second issue with them is that they're just not very hygienic at all. Not hygienic at all, because what we're essentially talking about here is a hole in the ground, what people fill with sinful ordure, full of flies and disease and who knows what else. So very disgusting indeed. Um, so pit toilets, you know, again, not the not the safest, uh, either environmentally or hygienically uh, speaking. And uh, one of the reasons that, you know, flushing toilets and toilets that use flowing water uh, certainly are the, uh, are the more popular choice these days. And, and, and back then as well, when they were feasible, back then you've got toilets that use flowing water uh, diverted underneath where the... Um, where the action would take place uh, and then would dispose of, you know, the logs that you pinched off, take it back to the stream or the river or whatever else. Nice and safe. You know, sorry to all the people living downstream, I guess. You've just got turds floating down the river to you. But for the person that's doing it, again, nice and safe. Don't even worry about it. I mean, not ideal for those living downstream, but I guess you should have thought about that before you chose to live there, mate. Um, Anyway. In the classical era, we we do see some fresh developments here. So we've had a couple of thousand years of, of not too much happening in the in the in the world of toilets, but in the classical era, um, some some things changed. Uh, for example, in China, uh, people used pig toilets, not pit toilets, but pig toilets, rather than dig a, a pit or use flowing water. People uh, built toilets, little sort of outhouses, right above. A pigsty, so sort of like a little bridge almost, really, with a with a little outhouse at the top of it, right? And you'd pinch off a loaf uh, right into the pigsty itself. You'd sit on the toilet, and it would fall straight down into the pigsty. Um, and the pigs, bloody loving it, yum yum, bit of extra dinner for them, delicious. They they're absolutely loving life. So a very a very clever way, and also, I mean, a relatively safe and clean way to uh, to dispose of human waste. There, just uh, you know, just blasting one straight into a straight into a pigsty. So very clever indeed. Uh, but in the sixth century. BCE, in Greece, chamber pots began to be used. These are some of the earliest chamber pots that we have on record here. Pots, obviously, that you keep in your house, often under your bed, uh, and you'd use you know, you'd use them in the comfort and the privacy of your own home before emptying them out later. Now, chamber pots stuck around for a long time. Of course, you're probably familiar with what chamber pots look like and, and how they work, that sort of stuff. They weren't replaced, really, until flushing toilets caught on properly in the 19th century. And I'm, still there. I'm sure there are still people around the world who use them. Um, but how they were emptied definitely has has differed enormously depending on the historical period from place to place and also what the industrial needs of the area were at the time. Now, obviously, we all know the stories of people emptying chamber pots out of their windows, bloody gross, disgusting. But even back in ancient Rome, right, in classical in the in the classical periods we're talking about here, there were organized public systems for the orderly removal of human waste using chamber pots. In large cities like Rome, right, there were public receptacles out in the streets where you would go and empty out your chamber pots because piss was actually enormously useful in certain industries. It was used in cloth fulling. Uh, human waste can be used in leather full, uh, leather tanning as well. Um, and so the stuff that was dumped out of chamber pots was taken to, you know, for fullers and whatever else for them to use as part of their industrial processes. But most famously, 
most famously from this uh, from this era in history, from the you know from from the classical era, particularly in ancient Rome. We have the Roman public latrine, and there are many famous examples of these latrines that have survived to the very to this very day. You know, you can go online and you can see pictures of them. Some of them are a little rundown and busted up. Some of them still have a sense of uh, of what they used to look like there with mosaics and decorations and whatever else. You know, you, you've probably seen pictures of them. You know, they're large rooms, stone benches set into the walls, small holes in the benches to sit on. But here is where, you know, I was talking before about cubicles and privacy. Here's where they, where they differ on that score because these latrines were very public indeed in every sense of the word. They weren't just public latrines in the sense that anyone could use them. They were public in the sense that they didn't have dividers or cubicles and it was common to sit and have a chat to the person next to you while you were snapping one off. They even had communal brushes with which you would wipe your ass. This was a bit of sponge on the end of a stick stored in a pot of vinegar. So once you'd finish, you'd go to the person and say, oh, sorry, mate, can you just pass this? Thanks, mate. Cheers very much. Thanks very much for that. Grab the stick with the sponge, wipe yourself off, and then you'd whack it back in the vinegar pot for the next person to use. I mean, today you think about people layering toilet paper on the seat, using a ream of stuff on their dirty buttholes, but back in ancient Rome, it was a vinegar-flavoured sponge that gave you a bit of a wipey-wipe that was then shared with the next person. Nice one. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, these latrines, very famous, as I say, uh, because they stuck around, they survived, and there are still remains uh, of, of the latrines themselves, but also some of the culture that surrounds... I mean, think about this, right? This isn't new. Ever since humans have been humans, and before this even, right, there has been waste that we've needed to dispose of from our disgusting sacks of meat we call bodies, right? It is something that was just as much of a concern for a Roman citizen, you know, 2,000 years ago as it is for you today. When you got to go, you got to go, man, and that hasn't changed. And so examining not just the mechanical parts of, of these ruins, but also the cultural parts of them is, is absolutely fascinating. There's, there's remains of, of, of graffiti uh, on these buildings. Some of, the, some of the decorations as well speak to the, the, the universality of toilet humour that has been passed, out through, through, passed down through centuries, through millennia. And this is the stuff that really excites me about, about history because history is in effect, in many ways, a, a study of the shared human condition. And ancient humans didn't have, I don't know, telephones or the internal combustion engine or like pogs, right? But they did have to go to the toilet just in the same way that we do. And it's so interesting to connect yourself with someone who lived so far. I mean, they lived that long ago that they may as well have lived on another planet, but they were still living, breathing, walking, talking, pooing, weeing humans. And that's something that we have in common with them. And examining these ancient latrines really gives us a, a sense of that. Again, because it's such a taboo subject, because there isn't because you know, historians haven't devoted the centuries to, to discovering how we, we do our poo-poos and wee-wees. It's fascinating to use what we can to paint a picture of this. And this is what I find so interesting about it, right? Graffiti on and around these buildings, much of it obscene, much of it to do with toilets, much of it to do with what you did on the toilet. It's fantastic. And in one Roman latrine that was only very recently discovered, in 2018, this one was discovered in Turkey, there are mosaics on the wall, right? Decorations that were put there by the people who built the buildings, filled with toilet humour. 
right? So this isn't graffiti. This has been put there deliberately by the people that built the buildings. There's a, a, a mythical Trojan prince called Ganymedes, right? He's uh, he's depicted in this um, uh, in in this mosaic. And he's depicted not with the usual hoop and stick. That was typically what uh, Ganymedes would be uh, would be depicted with. He's instead holding a stick with a sponge, one of the things you used to wipe your ass. And he's having his ass cleaned by a heron who is thought to represent Jupiter. There's also Narcissus, right? The the legendary bloke who you, you've heard of this bloke's story. He looked, he, he fell in love with his own reflection, right? But instead, in this mosaic, right, he's ugly as he's ugly as all get out. He's got a face like a slapped ass, and instead. He is depicted admiring his own colossal Johnson, which is just so excellent. Instead of falling in love with his reflection, he's falling in love with the reflection of his dick, which is just so good. Oh, and this was 2,000 years ago, man. It's excellent. Oh, and here's what's really good about this as well. You know, I talk about the fact that historians haven't devoted centuries to, you know, recording in depth how we used to go about our business in this way. When people rediscovered some of these ancient dunnies, not the one in 2018, but ones, you know, in the 19th century, whatever else, when they discovered uh, these toilets, uh, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, they refused to acknowledge them as toilets. This is so funny, right? There were people, there were excavators who dug out these uh, these ruins and discovered them, you know, and decided it would be too gross, too indecent uh, to talk of such things. And so instead... They came up with these ridiculous cover stories about them being advanced pump systems for Roman palaces and things like that. I mean, it doesn't stop there either. When a bun- you, you may have heard this was in the news uh, a couple of years ago. When a bunch of small ceramic discs were found in Roman, ruin, Ro- Roman ruins, archaeologists mistakenly classified them as game pieces. They were like small, almost like little checkers pieces they kind of look like. But it turns out they were used to wipe your ass with. They were bits of ceramics that had been sort of sanded down until they were smooth, and then they were used to wipe your bum, uh, which wouldn't have been too comfortable. But hey, I guess, you know, they didn't have toilet toilet paper, did they? So it goes to show the lengths that people will go to to avoid toilet talk. It's unbelievable. And it makes it all the more satisfying to unpick, you know, these knotty mysteries of uh, of ancient uh, ancient toilet-related, uh, you know, systems, processes, and, and, and situations. Uh, in the modern era, you know, when we are at a little more liberty to uh, to talk and laugh about this sort of stuff. Anyway, let's move away from the classical period now, move into the medieval era. And this is an area where we know a little bit more about this sort of stuff. And, and you know, there, there are a lot more tropes to do with uh, with poos and wheeze and, and human waste and toilets when it comes to medieval history. Because there were some changes, some, some you know, not huge changes, but some significant changes to the way that, you know, waste was disposed of and dealt with in this, uh, in this, in this period in history. Um, common folk, you know, there, there's very, there's two different, very, very different experiences. We'll talk about commoners first, go on to nobles afterwards. Common folk would often use, much of the time they would just find a convenient place to go, you know, a ditch dug outside a town or a village, very crude, nothing fancy at all. But this is, this is the way it would go, particularly in European villages or, or, or t- town, more, more towns, towns and cities, um, in, in medieval Europe, this is, you know, you just go and squatter over a, a ditch in the ground. And, and that was, uh, that was how you do it there. And as a result, particularly in Europe, medieval settlements absolutely stank because there was effluence everywhere you looked, everywhere. And in smaller towns or on the outskirts of, uh, of larger ones, these ditches would, I mean, I, I was going to use the word drained, but even that is very generous. The, these these ditches were, they relied on rainwater to flush them clean every now and again. And common people would just squat over these ditches, blast one out and continue their day just like that and hope the rain would carry it away not too long afterwards. 
Um, and, and honestly, some, I mean, I say they'd, they'd walk all the way to these ditches. To, some would even do that. Some, especially men who just needed a slash, right? They'd just go down an alleyway to do it or even just on the side of the street. So as a result, right, medieval cities, they stank to high heaven. You wouldn't believe it. And that's not, that, as we'll discover, it's not the only reason why. Um, in uh, In settlements that had rivers running through them or waterways it was it was a little better uh, it was a little better for for people living in these uh, in these settlements because the river would become the favorite place uh for commoners to go and have it you know have a little cheeky poo poo uh there'd be areas uh usually towards the downstream part of the town obviously uh where you'd go you'd punch one straight into the river itself and 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 that would be that you know you didn't have these disgusting ditches filled with uh, filled with uh, effluence there but further out in the country particularly on agricultural estates there were dedicated cesspits set up for workers to use. So there'd be holes dug, uh, you know, and, and a previous outhouse put on the top of them. You'd, you'd uh, do your business there. And then these, uh, once filled, they would actually be emptied out again and used as manure. They'd use, be used as, as fertilizer on the, uh, you know, on the agricultural estates in, in the land surrounding it. So, you know, a, a good use of the waste, certainly a very, uh, a, a very, a very effective use of, of what would otherwise be, uh, you know, something not, not particularly useful. But in larger cities, uh, you know, we talk about how they stank and that sort of stuff. And larger cities, another reason for this, uh, particularly if you were wealthy, if you're a bit wealthier, if you lived in the centre of town, if the outskirts might be too far for you to walk, people did use chamber pots. We talked about chamber pots already. And uh, when they were finished, they would just empty the chamber pots out onto the street below, you know, bloody bugger of a thing if you're walking underneath them. But this was something that did happen. You would just chuck the contents of a chamber pot out onto the street below and sorry, I guess, if you're walking underneath it, that's your bad luck. Large cities also had uh, public communal toilets above great big cesspits, which would regularly be emptied by the brave souls that were employed to do so. And some cities like London would also build public toilets into their bridges over the rivers so you could um, you'd punch one out straight into the river below. And these toilets even had their own attendants to, to keep them clean. And when it came to actually people keeping themselves clean, here's another interesting point, uh, you know, about about toilet paper, which obviously didn't exist at this time. I mean, pa- I mean, paper was rare enough. It was a very rare and fancy commodity. You weren't going to go about wiping your ass with it, mate. Forget it. So what people would actually use to wipe their bums is they'd usually use leaves or grass or straw, stuff like that. Toilet paper, completely unheard of. So this was the common experience of of the lower classes in the medieval period. You would use a, usually a communal toilet, or you'd just go in a ditch outside town, or in the river, um, or again, you know, if you were if you're working the land, you'd, you'd be building up a, a stockpile of manure fertilizer for the for the land on which you were working. That's the experience of the of the of the commoner during this time. What about the nobility? Now this is we we, we have a lot more information, a lot more we have a lot more knowledge about uh, about the way that nobles went about their business. Um, and for the reason for that is, particularly in Europe, noble noble uh, Europeans would have uh, garderobes built into the castles themselves. Obviously, a lot of the, these castles have stuck around to this very day. You might have seen them. You might have seen these garderobes. They're the little bit of castles that um, the, the bits of castles that stick out from the wall. They look, they look kind of like bay windows without the windows. Um, and they sort of they they ho- hover out. They 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 protrude from the wall. There's a hole underneath them, um, uh, and above the hole, a bit of wood that had a hole in it itself, you'd sit on the wood, sheer drop to the ground below from there. And uh, then, you know, the, almost just like a little cubicle that uh, that was built into the wall of the castle. And um, 
these garderobes, as they're called, I mean, that's another euphemism, by the way, the garderobe, uh, they were kept well away from bedrooms, so as to keep the smell there for a minimum. They were also usually uh, filled with herbs and flowers, as, as well as an open window that, that wouldn't be shuttered. Again, for the same reason, make sure they're not getting too smelly. And some of them were also built to uh, benefit from rainwater. Rainwater would be uh, diverted from the castle roofs along near these garter robes, again, to you know, sort of flush out and, and, and clean the area below a little bit. Uh, while others actually had workmen and farmers come and collect the piles of turds below, again, to use as fertilizer. So obviously the nobles here, they had, um, they had plenty of people to, there to do their dirty work for them. So uh, that, was how, that was how that sort of happened there. They, they also... Um, they also did use chamber pots uh, as well. They obviously in in the same way that uh, uh, that, that wealthier townsfolk would use chamber pots. The, the nobles did use well. Obviously, they didn't empty. They didn't just chuck them out the castle windows. They had the servants come and uh, and, and take that away for them. They like that. And there were uh, in some situations. This is very interesting, uh, particularly in the the English monarchy. There was a position known as the groom of the stool, and this was a bloke who would help the king with his, as Wikipedia puts it excretions and ablutions uh this is the bloke who would basically wipe the king's ass for him right and it became i mean it sounds like a sounds like a terrible job but the the groom of the stool ended up almost always becoming a very close confidant of the king and actually would become very politically powerful due to this deeply intimate connection with the most powerful person in the land. And the Groom of the Stool became a, a feared and respected uh, political force. And there's a long list of names that you can go and examine, all the all the people who held this, this coveted position over the years who would sit there next to, or stand there next to the king while he did his business on the Thunderbox and, uh, you know, and, and then, uh, and then again, basically wipe his ass for him. And uh, again, a, a position of, uh, of great power and prestige, despite the fact that it does sound like you are, well, I mean, wiping a bloke's ass for him as well, which isn't what a lot of kids want to do when they grow up. I, I, I guess you could put it that way. Anyway, um, and uh, one final interesting thing about uh, the garter robes that were built into castle walls is that they did present a, a, a fundamental weakness in the design of castles. Castles, of course, designed to be defended. And uh, these garter robes were a weakness in that sense. And there is an example. There's one occasion in the early 13th century, a besieged castle in France called Chateau Gaillard, right, was breached by people who climbed in through the garter robe holes. I mean, not the nicest way to get into a castle, but hey, whatever works when you're sieging it, right? Um, after this, however, castle designers took steps to prevent this with masonry built to, you know, let stuff out without um, letting anything in. So uh, this was, um, you know, this was a problem that was dealt with in due course, but uh, there were people who climbed up through dunny holes in order to uh, to order to break uh, break castle sieges. Um, there was also in the tops of castles, urinals were built into castle walls as well, right at the top, uh, usually in the battlements, right where the guards were keeping watch. And the reason for this is they're just I mean they're just little holes that drained to the outside walls, but they were there. So the guards didn't have to leave their posts. They could hang a piss while they were still on duty, still, you know, watching out over the land surrounding the castle while still, uh, while still hanging a slash there. So very, very smart, very smart indeed to, uh, to keep uh, the guards on duty maximum amount of time, you know, uh, uh, quite, quite an innovative thing to do there. Um, so that's, those are European castles. In the Muslim world, things were a little bit different. Uh, in the Muslim world during this period, things were a fair bit better. Large cities had sewer systems and basic toilets that used water to flush away. Some cities even had multi-storey buildings with rudimentary flushing toilets on each floor. So things were a fair bit better uh, in, in the Islamic world than they were in Europe, which is, you know, 
broadly speaking, true of a lot of things during this period, the Islamic world, during this period known as the Islamic Golden Era, they, um, the Islamic world was, was much more advanced than the European one in, uh, in, you know, than, than, than the Christian world in, in many ways. And this is just one of the ways, the, the, the plumbing, the um, waste disposal services like this, again, using what by today's standards are primitive, but still flushing toilets um, is an advancement that they had on, uh, on, on uh, Europe and Christendom there. But largely speaking, Little enough in the development of toilets for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and the settlements of the medieval period, obviously, they usually smelt like toilets themselves. In many instances, not very clean places at all. And as time passed and as cities became larger, rainwater was no longer sufficient to clean out ditches and streets and gutters. Right, And what's more, the huge number of cesspits that were dug uh, as public latrines they started to affect local water supplies. You can listen to the uh, the ultimate consequence of that, that in episode 122, The Great Stink. You can hear about what happened to London after this got out of control. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. But things began to change um, as we move out of the medieval era and into the early modern and modern periods here with the development of what would go on to become the modern flushing toilet. And one of the most important precursors to the modern flushing toilet was the one that was built in 1596 by a bloke whose name is Sir John Harrington. And I'm told, and I haven't sort of verified this by going through the family tree here, but I'm told that Sir John Harrington is an ancestor of none other than Kit Harrington, uh, the famous actor from Game of Thrones. So the the you know the blood of historical significance courses through that young man's vein with uh, one of his predecessors inventing a uh, again a, a, precur- a precursor to the modern flushing toilet. He he built he used a tank like many um, many modern toilets do to release water that would flush away the wee wees and the poo poos, um, and he even presented this invention and installed it for Queen Elizabeth the first. He uh, presented it to the Queen and installed it in Richmond Palace although uh, she didn't like it very much. She said it was too noisy, and so it didn't sort of catch on in the royal household there, but still an enormously uh, important development here, using a tank of water to flush away uh, the waste that was deposited in there. But Harrington's invention, it lacked something critical. It lacked something really, really important. It lacked 
the S-trap. This is often referred to as an S-bend. This invention changed the game. It came along in 1775 thanks to a Scottish inventor whose name was Alexander Cumming. He patented a, a design, right, that had pipes arranged in a sideways S configuration as part of the waste disposal system. It was a, there was a pipe in an S shape, right? Now, no doubt you've seen, um, you know, plumbing traps like these. If you, if you haven't seen one, have a look under your sink because... We still use them today. We still, I mean, variations on exactly what uh, what coming invented. You know, today there are S traps, U traps, P traps, J tra- J traps, all sorts, right? Um, but we still use them today for for a few very good reasons. First of all, heavy stuff gets stuck in them, so um, if you drop your ring down the sink or some coins or something, there's a fair chance that they'll uh, they'll be stuck there in the uh, in the S bend, the U bend, whatever you want to call it, right? But the main reason. <clears throat> is that the water that is trapped in this bend acts as a seal. It acts as a seal to prevent air coming back up the pipe on the other side of the water. As you flush a toilet or a sink or whatever else, the the dirty water that you flush down the pipe displaces the water at the bottom, right? And pushes the air back up the other side of the pipe, which means that it can now no longer get back through the bend of the pipe because water is blocking the bottom of the pipe using gravity. It's hard to explain in words. Look at a diagram of it and it makes perfect sense immediately. And this, as I say, was a total game changer. It's important for a number of reasons. Number one, it means that toilets no longer stink. They, the smell of you, your you know, disgusting excretions is now trapped on the other side of the water along with the, the, you know, along with the foul source of it. So it's not, it's not just sitting there in a pile and stinking out your toilet room. But also, right, the S-trap, the U-trap, the P-trap, the J-trap has very important applications in industry because they act as a valve to prevent harmful or toxic gases from getting back into areas that they're not supposed to be. So this invention, it, it was, as I say, a game changer, not just in terms of um, you know, the, the, the safety and the desirability, desirability of toilet design, but also in terms of, of, of safely flushing away or using um, hazardous, hazardous materials that could be kept on one side of a, of a system, isolated almost, using nothing more complicated than a pipe and a bit of water. So it was a, a very important leap forward here using the S-Bend, uh, you know, in, in toilet uh, in toilet designs moving forward. And, and, and this design, you know, this new invention, it was quickly adapted into designing new toilets, um, which also used tanks of water to push, you know, push waste through the trap, just as we do today. And as the Industrial Revolution changed our relationship with technology forever, increasingly urban populations came to expect a greater amount of comfort and convenience in their homes. Across the breadth of the 19th century, the flushing toilet went from being a rare curiosity to something that was actually aggressively marketed to the middle classes. It was something that came standard in newly built homes by the end, middle class homes at least, by the end of the 20th century. Um, and, and this century, more than any other, was where we really saw a, a huge amount of development in, in the design, in the, in the toilet world, the way they were designed, the way they were, they were used. Water closets, as they became known, uh, became more developed and more advanced than ever before. 
as various inventors worked to improve their designs. In 1852, George Jennings, he patented a design that always left a bit of water in the bowl. Again, this is something that we're used to today. You know, you're not plonking a turd down on, into dry porcelain most of the time. Uh, and this is this was a, an innovation that, um, uh, that George Jennings came up with. Again, only improving the use of water as an odour seal. So, uh, you know, great stuff from Jennings there, except, of course... There's always a downside, and because of Jennings now, he is responsible for the dreaded sensation involved with the uh, splashback, if you like. When you, uh, you know, when you let go of one as big as a rock and it blasts into the water like a kid at a pool, that you can, when you get that cold witch's kiss right on your butthole, you can thank George, George's, uh, you can thank George Jennings for that one. Um, but Jennings made a killing off of this invention. He, uh, he made thousands exhibiting his toilet designs in public. He charged people a penny to try them out. Uh, for a penny, you got a shoe shine. Uh, you got the use of a clean towel and a comb. And you got the chance to bust a grumpy into a modern technological marvel, which is not too bad a deal for a penny, I would have thought. Um, in, in the 1870s, around the 1870s, another bloke whose name was Thomas William Twyford, he designed the single-piece ceramic toilet. Now, rather than being a bunch of separate pieces that had been put together, you know, the bowl, the pipe, whatever else, he actually designed it all in one neat little package and, again, took another step towards toilets as we know them today. You look at a toilet, usually today they're just one piece of porcelain, and that was something that, uh, that Twyford pioneered again around the 1870s. His designs were enormously popular, very successful, and they were marketed around the world, supported by increasingly stringent public health measures that were taken by governments towards the end of the 19th century. And this is where, you know, we, we can have a laugh about toilets. Obviously, they're, very, they're just inherently funny things. But what toilets have done for civilization as another way of utilizing, um, you know, again, increasingly stringent public health measures, these, this is something that increased people's quality of life by reducing disease, by reducing exposure to bacteria, parasites, um, and whatever else. Uh, it is, you know, the modern toilet has improved civilization as a whole because slow, slowly but surely, as these designs improved and as governments started to care more about this sort of stuff, uh, these these two things went hand in hand to increase overall public sanitation systems. And and we do, you know, we can laugh about it, but we do owe a lot to the toilet when it comes to to public safety, cleanliness, health, and and whatever else. But of course, there's one bloke we have to talk about here, and you may be a little bit disappointed, as we do, because I do want to uh, I do want to bring to your attention the very famous Sir Thomas Crapper, whose name you will have heard of before, and you will have heard stuff about this bloke that I'm very sorry to tell you here. I hate to burst the bubble, is probably untrue. Uh, his name, uh, Sir Thomas Crapper, is not the origin of the term Crapper, or even the word crap, which in some ways actually makes his story even more ridiculous. Because crapper was already slang for a toilet, even before Sir Thomas started getting involved with him. I mean, perhaps he felt compelled to join the industry, giving his name. Maybe he got picked on as a kid for being called Sir Thomas Crapper. He's like, well, I'll show them. I'll invent the best toilet the world's ever seen. But crap was a word that was used to refer to, um, you know, to uh, <clears throat> feces. Uh, well before his time, it comes from Middle English, which took it from either Old French, where it means waste, uh, or the Dutch uh, krappen, which means cut off or separate. So both of them are plausible etymologies. But crap was around for a long time before uh, before Sir Thomas Crapper. 
And uh, I mean, because I mean, maybe because of his name, really, he has a somewhat inflated reputation. Maybe it's just good marketing on his part, you know, with a name like. I mean, maybe I should be riding around on a horse with a longsword and a, and a you know, and one of them jousting lances. Maybe I've missed a trick here, but uh, so Thomas Crapper definitely made the most of it because, contrary to popular legend, right. He did not invent the flushing toilet, as we've heard about. So many people think that he did, but he didn't. I mean, he did make toilets. Uh, he he did invent. He did make a very important uh, contribution to the development of toilets. He invented, or invented is maybe a, a strong word, but he incorporated the U-bend into the flushing toilet. He improved the plumbing of the toilet. The U-bend, unlike the S-bend, isn't prone to getting jammed or blocked. It doesn't need an overflow. And as a result, um, this new design uh, spread like wildfire. It was just a better way to build a toilet, and we have th- we have Crapper to thank for that. He was awarded three patents, three different patents, uh, for his improvements to the design of the toilet. One of which involved not just the you know the incorporation of the U bend here. He uh, of his three toilet related patents, one of them was for the incorporation of the floating ballcock. So the floating ballcock put into the modern toilet by Sir Crapper. That is an actual, factual thing that history gave us. For free. We just get that for being fans of history. The floating ballcock, thanks to Sir Crapper. The ballcock, by the way, is that, um, it's the floating mechanism thing that's inside a toilet's tank. It tells the tank when to stop refilling with water. You may have seen one before. You will have definitely seen one if you've ever upper-decked someone. And for those of you who are asking what an upper decking is, well, unfortunately, that falls outside the, the purview of, of this particular podcast episode. I'm sorry about that. You'll have to, uh, have, to look at that, have to look at that one under your own steam. Anyway, by the end of the 19th century, very significant advances have been made to the toilet to make it largely similar to the type that we use today. There, you know, there, are, there, are a couple of, uh, there are a couple of differences between the toilet of 1900 and the toilet of 2000, of course, but broadly speaking, the prototype was, uh, it's largely unchanged. With, a, with an interesting, not exception, but variation, there is a very significant difference between toilets used on either side of the Atlantic. I'm talking about a, a you know a, a, a sitting toilet here that used in in North America and Europe here. Um, in uh, in the United States in North America in 1906, the American inventor William Elvis Sloan he invented again this is not a joke he invented the flushometer. Uh, which was adopted in American toilet design, but not in European design. It's a device that pressurizes water, the, the water that's used for flushing. And, and this is why American toilets make that terrifying, that deafening blast whenever they're flushed. The hissing sound is, an, and, you know, and as an added bonus, the flushometer also, the flushometer toilets also create way, way, way more airborne droplets every time that they're flushed. So nice one there. But that's why American toilets are weird and make a huge amount of noise whenever you flush them because of Sloan and his uh, his flushometer. Whereas, you know, on the other side of the Atlantic, many other parts of the world, Australia, you've just got normal ones that don't, you know, burst your eardrums every time you flush them. But since the beginning of the 20th century, uh, only small improvements have been made. You know, n- nothing hugely revolutionary to the overall design that brought about the modern toilets in the 19th century. For example, in 1907, the Vortex flushing toilet bowl was invented by uh, Thomas McCavity Stewart. This helps clean the toilet as it's flushed, although in my, you know, in my opinion, not well enough, because I'm always bloody leaving great big skid marks in my wake. Don't even worry about it. So, Stuart, I reckon you need to go back to the drawing board and figure out a way to get those vortices spinning even faster, mate, because whew, when I'm finished, geez, those, those skid marks aren't moving. 
Um, also in 1980, there was an Australian company, Coroma. They developed the dual flush toilet to save water, uh, which has enormously reduced overall water, du- water usage in, uh, in, in toilets in households uh, around the world. It reduces the usage of, toilet, uh, of water in toilets by about 60, uh, 67%, which is just bananas. Uh, a, pretty big, a pretty big environmental um, uh, impact of, of a simple development there in, uh, in 1980. But today, of course, as I'm sure you're, you're aware, most advancements in toilet-based technology uh, seem to be coming out of Japan, where they've got dunnies that have, like, heated seats that can spray water up your ass or sing to you or make constant flushing noises so people can't hear your great big loud trumpeting farts in case you're the sort of person who worries about that sort of thing. The latest developments in Japanese toilet technology include, it's not a joke, they include devices built into the toilets that medically analyse your turds. They take your blood pressure, they take your temperature, they measure your blood sugar. I mean, maybe this is a bit much, but it's it, it's better than dropping a stanky juice into a hole in the ground, I suppose. Um, but in, in, another interesting thing about, about uh, toilets in Japan and, and, and in many other places around the world as well, Western-style sitting toilets um, have become more popular than the previously preferred squat toilet. Now, squat toilets are still very common in many places worldwide, throughout Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, in Hindu and Muslim countries, and much of the developing world, squat toilets are, are very common. But the trend is towards the sitting toilet, and this style uh, is becoming, again, increasingly unpopular and increasingly common throughout the world as time goes on. There are even hybrids between sitting and squat toilets. They're sort of basically sitting toilets that you can squat on you know you stand on either side of the bowl and squat over it like that uh i mean for people who either can't make up their minds or want to inject a little excitement and variety into their lives but what's really interesting about this is as i was reading about sitting and squat toilets all in the name of research of course what's very interesting about the uh, the dichotomy between these two toilets here is that people who grow up using sitting toilets tend to think that squat toilets are kind of gross. And I mean, I'm one of these people and I think, I've, you know, I've seen squat toilets in airports in Asia and stuff and I'm like, ugh, no, thank you, <laughs> right? But the interesting thing is people who grow up with squat toilets tend to think that sitting toilets are kind of gross. And this made me think, this brings me to a very interesting thing about toilets, a side effect of just how wonderful they are. Because the toilet for me and for so many people around the world I know, it is a place of near total seclusion. After you've been taught how to use a toilet, in most cases it's very rare for someone to witness you, you know, taking care of your business, punishing the porcelain with the heft of your mighty turds. And I find this isolation very calming. It's a welcome respite from the busy activity of the day-to-day. It's a place to retreat, to relax and reflect. I mean, you know, I'm I'm saying this semi-jokingly, but in all seriousness, I personally find it very meditative, very tranquil, a place where I know that I'm free from, from interruption, free from intrusion. And this brings me to an observation that was made to me by my good friend Matei Zadelkai. We don't know how weird the way we use the toilet is. I was like... A tiny child, the last time I was given a lesson on how to use these damn things, I mean, well over two decades ago. And since then, I've been left to my own devices. I've had no one to observe or criticize my style or technique. I might have developed this weird, like, inbred, strange, aberrant behavior that I just now 
think is normal because my behavior is slowly morphed in this echo chamber where no one else has come and said, hang on, what are you doing? Like, I only found in the last couple of years that some people scrunch their toilet paper rather than folding it. What do other people do? Do they wipe back to front? Do they make a close visual or tactile inspection of the results? Do people sit facing the wall, hugging the tank? I mean, I don't know, and I don't really want to know, because quite aside, quite aside from you know helping to revolutionise public health systems by giving us a safe way to dispose of our waste, toilets also provide us with something that is coming increase, becoming increasingly rare in our ever more connected world. They give us privacy, real, actual privacy. So here, at the end of this episode, I would like to give thanks to the humble toilet. Not only for the increase in public hygiene and the consequent improvement of human civilization, not only for the countless hours of infantile and puerile humor that it's given me over the years, but also for being a place of rest, a temple of private reflection, an oasis of tranquility. Well, I say an oasis of tranquility, but mate, if I've had jalapenos the night before, you better forget about it. Or hot sauce, oh, like it was me. I'm off script like a But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of the toilet. And I hope you enjoyed it even half as much as I enjoyed writing it, because this was terrific. I mean... I was kind of joking about it to begin with, like getting paid to talk about toilets, not a bad way to live your life. But I, I mean, I can only thank you for sitting here and listening to me do this because it, you know, the 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 little kid inside me, the little five year old who found toilets the most the, the the most hilarious thing in the world is just jumping for joy at being able to sit here and talk about what has been a lifelong passion, passion of mine, <laughs> toilet humor, and now I get to do this dumb podcast. So thanks so much for listening and supporting the show. If you want to support the show even more, you can go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash halfhousehistory, and you can uh, you can pledge there uh, if you'd like to, uh, you know, support the show financially. But even just listening to the show is uh, is a great way to support. You can spread the good word of Half House History as well. The website, halfhousehistory.net, and find ways to subscribe there and links to old episodes. And, of course, the contact form. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode or if you've got any other suggestions, especially anything that is going to be dumb silly funny or anything else that's to do with toilets of course i'll be all over it and to all the prudes as well who sat through this episode all the way here with your nose wrinkled and your arms folded i want to say thank you because if you weren't there getting mildly offended at my toilet talk it wouldn't be anywhere near as much fun so thank you to all the prudes in the world for giving me so much life with your scornful expressions every time I start talking about a dunny. Anyway, that is that for another episode of Half House History. Thanks so much for being here uh, with me for it. And we're going to close out the show with a cracker of a question taken from Reddit here. This one from Redditor Schmebelock, who's got a toilet-related question for us. They ask, if I only eat toilet paper, will my ass wipe itself? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.